Jesus had from the beginning submitted himself to the will of the Father, even swallowing up his own. He had forsworn the use of force, and he had forsworn self-serving dominion. His life was to be a life of persuasion, both in word and in action. In contrast, the adversary had forsworn freedom and had sought unlawfully for the use of force and then had asked, as the consequence of that, to have for himself and only himself all the glory. The great irony of history is that Jesus, by losing himself, became both admirable and worshipable and the father before him, but the adversary, by his uh, hate, by his self-adulation and pride, had instead ended up in exile with no redeeming virtue. And as it stands today, one of them cannot but care about all others and is willing that rather that they suffer, he suffer whereas the adversary is a sadist who seeks to make all men miserable like unto himself. What can we learn from the way Jesus coped with his temptation and trial as it relates to our own? Clearly, the first important insight is that he was genuinely tempted. Many have thought of Jesus as one who came into the world, as it were, in a cosmic diving suit, who was not exposed to the buffetings of the real world, who walked through life in a white robe, never was tired, never wearied, never pushed or pulled in different directions. But our scriptures teach us, on the contrary, that though he had greater power as he came into the world than any man, he yet suffered and experienced a proportionate temptation and that he actually not only was tried more than man can be tried, but tempted more than man can be tempted. And we know further that it wasn't the end of his temptations that occurred after the 40 days of fasting. The record says that the devil left him, quote, for a season and three years later, he says to his apostles, Ye are they who have continued with me in my temptations. One wonders what the last temptation might have been. And in the setting of the three we have discussed, one can speculate that as the Jewish tradition teaches, the worst thing the evil inclination can do to a man and the evil inclination personified is the adversary. The worst thing it can do is to make him forget that he is the son of a king. And nothing is more appropriate to be said for Jesus. For had he been willing to abandon his own sense of identity, much the easier course. Had he been willing even to deny but in his soul he knew that he had been born only begotten in the flesh 
and firstborn in the Spirit, then his life could have become meaningless. And the temptation of pride, which always says in the end, I deserve better than this, could have been a powerful weapon by the adversary. But we learn something else. There are two opposite errors to be made in confronting the forces of evil and darkness. And the first is to underestimate the subtlety and the cunning and the long-range experience of Satan. For he knows the cause of Christ, and he attempts to clip the wings of his servants. And by stealth and persistence, he does have power to enchain people and lead them down. On the other hand, there is an opposite error, and that is to overestimate the power of the adversary, and then to introduce, usually out of superstition, practices or rituals or habits of trying to counter or remove the threat of evil forces. And in the Middle East to this day, there are such things. Avoiding, for example, what is called the evil eye. Uh, switching names to confuse the enemy. Putting the color blue on walls to somehow put away evil spirits. But we learn from the account of Jesus that the counsel of James is the final counsel. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Further, all men have power to resist, and all is finally voluntary. The devil has no power over us, said Joseph Smith, only as we permit him. And the fatal deception into which most of us tend to fall is, I can't help it. Clearly, in the life of Jesus, we see manifest the recognition, the revelatory knowledge that avoids the two errors. He did not underestimate, he did not overestimate, and he came off conqueror. Our own Book of Mormon tells us that Jesus would be called to, quote, suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. And in this wilderness, he experienced them all. When it was over, angels ministered unto him. A further word about the word wilderness. There are really three definitions of wilderness in the scriptures. And one is the literal one that involves beasts and trials and uh, physical struggle where men may die if they're away from home or from help. On the other hand, wilderness can be a sacred place, a place of seclusion, where one goes to withdraw from the bustle and the intrusions of life and seeks in an upreaching way to draw nearer to the Lord. But third, we read that wilderness is the name of the condition of one who is not able to recognize or to see the Lord. In the wilderness, says a modern verse, because you cannot see him. But when one is within range, when one can at least 
envision the Lord. He is no longer simply lost or simply wandering. He is on the way home. And the scriptural phrase for that is entering into the Lord's rest. Which rest, we are told, is the fullness of his glory. What kind of wilderness was Jesus in on this occasion? All three. He had experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, and his witness, John, had seen that the Spirit was abiding upon him. It abode with him. But now he has gone geographically away from that glorious experience. And though on the one hand able to commune with God, he is then left and finds himself buffeted. But further, the wilderness has been a place of seclusion. It has been a kind of natural temple. And he himself will become a temple and will plead in the presence of his enemies that if they destroy it, namely him, he will yet raise it in three days. But as for the anticipation of returning into the security of home, from this day on, Jesus rarely had a home. He would say later, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. If there were a place where he stayed frequently, though often making trips away, it would be both Capernaum and later Bethany. But even there, not for long. And so far as we can make out, Jesus never spent a night, never, within the walled city of Jerusalem, because early on he had estranged officialdom, both in the political and the social sense, and eventually further in the religious sense. So from this day on, the burden of being whom he was and of carrying the message he was to carry made Jesus somewhat homeless. And yet, again and again, we see in the record statements to the effect that the line, as it were, between him and the Father was never closed, that he could speak in a crowd or alone, and the Father would hear. And he tried, and sometimes failed, to lead his own apostles to the same closeness. There are times when he withdrew into northern wildernesses in the sense of seclusion. He went into a mount on three different occasions, and one of them was the entire night when he was about to call his apostles. So having gone into the wilderness and out of it, he was both in and through all things. He was in the predicaments that all men face, and therefore has power to understand all thoughts, all feelings, all actions. We learn further that there can be no power over the adversary that does not rest finally in the power of God. There cannot be boasting. And Jesus demonstrated, as well as taught, that he was dependent on the Father. So we have the statement of Paul, 
who says there is not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and speaking of Christ said he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin couple that with his other counsel on the how for us there hath no temptation taken you but is common to man but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it elsewhere in scripture and actually in one of Jesus replies to the adversary the expression is used thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God and it's an unusual idea that our trials are sometimes also trials to God himself Jesus repeatedly speaks of surrendering his own will to that of the Father in fact our own modern translation adds to the expression it is finished after the greatest trial of all with these four words the last apparently to escape the lips of Jesus thy will is done that is to say completed and fulfilled we have a saying in popular jargon that someone about whom we care a great deal is sort of our voice so we say your wish is my command in the life of Jesus the commands of God became always his wish we've been taught that the save and lose paradox is sensible in precisely this way one who seeks his own fulfillment at the expense of others or in violation of others will eventually be unsatisfied on the other hand one who loses his life as Jesus put it in concern for others and is in that sense selfless will in the end find fulfillment and this is an eternal law for we are taught that self-aggrandizement can only be achieved and now I'm quoting a, a modern discourse by the prophet Joseph Smith self-aggrandizement can only be achieved upon one plan or principle and that is to seek to elevate and ennoble others first Jesus in coping with the tantalizings of the adversary submitted his own will to that of the Father and that faith that power which he derived from such was ultimately the explanation of his victory we are told that we cannot have faith sufficient unto redemption and salvation unless we come to know that the course we are pursuing in life is according to the will of the Lord and then we're taught that we can't know that until we have demonstrated and not simply by word of mouth said that we are willing to sacrifice even if necessary our lives this is an overwhelming 
demand, but it is attended with promise. And in modern revelation, the promise is as follows. Those who are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice, even, I may add, the sacrifice that is involved in refusing temptation, they are they of whom the scripture speaks when it says, I will cause them to bring forth as a fruitful tree which is planted in a goodly land by a pure stream which bringeth forth much precious fruit. Only if we are rooted in Christ as he was rooted in the Father can we finally triumph over all temptation. Now, as Jesus lived in Nazareth, only a few miles north was a place called Sepphoris. And during the teen years, Jesus would have learned and perhaps have witnessed a solemn event. For in that community, a group rose up against Roman oppression and in this uprising tried to throw off the yoke and the Romans ruthlessly put it down by crucifying 2,000 men. The crucifixion possibility, therefore, would have entered Jesus' consciousness if from no other source than his own youth. It is even possible that the carpenter shop of his father and his own had to produce under Roman pressure some of the crosses that were used. So the shadow of his own destiny may have struck him in his comparative youth. Yet now, having embarked, and with his whole heart and mind, he is already being buffeted and told, in effect, to withdraw. But his commitment was as we have witnessed. He had found the way to the living Father and had agreed to the burden that was now upon him. And so we read in modern scripture that he was to ascend on high, but not until he had descended below all things. The exact language, he that ascended up on high as also he that descended below all things, that he might be in all and through all things the light of truth. <laughs>